It's Tuesday, May 28th. Welcome to Skim This. We're breaking down the most complex stories of the day and giving you the context on why they matter. Today, Oklahoma is taking Johnson & Johnson to court. It's the first state trial connected to the opioid epidemic. We'll break down how this could set a precedent for lawsuits in the future. Then, there's been an uptick in deaths on Mount Everest this season. But what's Nepal got to do with it? And finally, a small town in Germany has a new council member, and she's making a splash. We're here to make your Tuesday smarter. Let's skim this. Today's episode is brought to you by HoneyBook. The most complicated story today is about the opioid crisis. Prescription opioids can relieve pain from injuries, arthritis, and cancer. But they're very addictive, and they can be deadly. It's become a public health emergency. Across the country, more than 130 people die every day from opioid overdoses. That's more deaths per day than from car crashes or shootings. Over the last few years, states and federal prosecutors have sued drug manufacturers and distributors who make and sell opioids. Most of those lawsuits have ended in cash settlements made behind closed doors. But today, the doors were open for day one of the first major opioid trial in the U.S., in Norman, Oklahoma. The state attorney general is suing the pharma company Johnson & Johnson, claiming the J&J is, quote, the kingpin behind the public health emergency, and that it's profited from the state's opioid epidemic. Here's AG Mike Hunter giving his opening statement in court this morning. The pain, anguish, and heartbreak that Oklahoma families, businesses, communities, and individual Oklahomans is almost impossible to comprehend. How did this happen? At the end of the day, Your Honor, I have a short, one-word answer. Greed. Lawyers involved in more than 1,500 similar lawsuits going down across the country will be watching this trial. We're going to get into how this lawsuit got started and why, what Oklahoma is seeking, and why it's important. Oklahoma's AG first filed this lawsuit in 2017. It was one of the first lawsuits of its kind filed in the U.S., The AG says between 2015 and 2018, Oklahoma doctors wrote 18 million opioid prescriptions for a population of just 3.9 million. In 2017, just under 400 people in Oklahoma died from opioid-related causes. So Oklahoma sued three major pharma companies, Purdue Pharma, which makes OxyContin, Teva Pharmaceuticals, one of the world's largest generic drug makers, and Johnson & Johnson. You might know them for products like baby powder and baby shampoo. But Johnson & Johnson also produces opioids. All three were supposed to be part of this trial today. But in the past few months, two of those companies wiggled out of having to go to trial. In March, Purdue offered to settle for $270 million. That's couch change compared to the billions of dollars Oklahoma has said the opioid crisis will end up costing them. But the state was worried Purdue would end up declaring bankruptcy if they went to trial and the Okies would then be left empty-handed. So they settled. Then, just this past Sunday, Teva Pharmaceuticals gave in as well. They also agreed to settle for just $85 million, without admitting to doing anything wrong. Johnson & Johnson has so far refused to settle. Like we said, Purdue was facing a lot more expensive lawsuits and could have declared bankruptcy. But J&J makes $81 billion a year. They're probably not going to declare bankruptcy, so they'll pay the court fees. So what is Oklahoma saying that Johnson & Johnson did? The state says Johnson & Johnson contributed to the deadly opioid crisis in three ways. 
First, by owning companies that produce and refine the drug found in the poppy plant, aka opium. J&J says it sold those companies in 2016. Second, by creating its own opioid products, including the fentanyl pain patch, which goes right on the skin. Johnson & Johnson says they're a small player, and that since 2008, its opioid medications have only amounted to 1% of the prescriptions made across the country. Third, Oklahoma claims that J&J has contributed to the crisis by deceptive marketing and marketing opioids to kids to normalize the drug. J&J has denied this, but Oklahoma says they're going to show this in court. And Oklahoma's trying a different approach here. It's saying Johnson & Johnson violated the state's public nuisance law. That may sound like the state is equating J&J with the guy who doesn't pick up his dog's poop. But public nuisance laws are actually a big deal. In Oklahoma, public nuisances are usually considered things that hurt people's health, like a factory polluting a waterway. Oklahoma is trying to say that J&J created a public nuisance by knowingly marketing and selling opioids that they knew were more dangerous than they were telling consumers. J&J says its painkillers are regulated by the FDA and millions use them without getting addicted. To be clear, using public nuisance laws against pharma companies is a pretty radical approach for Oklahoma. But other states have had success invoking these laws against, say, tobacco companies. So it could work out for them. So what's the skim? Today is day one, but this trial in Oklahoma is expected to go on all summer long. And it'll be live streamed online. So we'll be able to hear the Oklahoma AG's novel approach and about the docs he says he has on J&J and how the company responds. At the end, the judge, and not a jury, will decide if the company should be held responsible. So we'll be keeping an eye on this. So will a bunch of lawyers involved in another huge opioid case going down in Ohio. That involves 1,500 lawsuits from state, local, and tribal governments across the country against a bunch of drug makers and distributors. All of those cases have been wrapped up into one. And those lawyers will be watching how Oklahoma's testing of the public nuisance law works out. The major player they're going after is Purdue Pharmaceuticals. So Purdue will also likely be watching how this plays out to see how J&J defends itself in court. That trial is scheduled to start in October. Other people coming under fire are officials in the country of Nepal. We'll explain why people are dying on Mount Everest. That's next. If you run a creative business, making clients look good is your thing. Tedious admin tasks, not so much. So let HoneyBook handle it. HoneyBook is a management tool that helps you stay organized with custom templates and automation tools. Right now, HoneyBook is offering our listeners 50% off your first year with promo code SKIMTHIS. Payment is flexible, and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. Go to HoneyBook.com and use promo code SKIMTHIS for 50% off your first year. Get paid faster and work smarter with HoneyBook.com. Promo code SKIMTHIS. When your lifelong dream turns into a vacation nightmare. That's been the story coming from Mount Everest this year. You may have seen the photos. A traffic jam of climbers standing in line to summit what's known as the roof of the world. At least 11 people have died this year. The last time that many people died there was during an avalanche in 2015. So today, we have three things you need to know about what's happening on Mount Everest right now. Starting with who gets to go. Mount Everest is 29,000 feet tall. To get to the top, you need a permit from the Nepalese government. China recently set a limit for permits to access the mountain from the Tibetan side, but Nepal doesn't have any limits. 
This year, they gave out a record 381. Each Nepalese permit costs about $11,000, and they're a big source of income for Nepal, one of Asia's poorest countries. This year's permits will bring in more than $4 million. But one thing to note, those permits are for a season, not for a specific date or time. And the Nepalese government has very loose regulations on how crowded the mountain gets. And on top of the permit fee, climbers pay a lot for training and to the tourist companies that get them to the mountain. All that can cost as much as $70,000. So it's not surprising that people will do whatever it takes to get to the top. So there's the money. And there's the weather. May is the time most people try to go up Mount Everest. But there's a short window of good weather. And this year, that window has been shorter than usual. And so many climbers are going up at the same time. And because of that, when they get almost to the top, the climbers are having to wait for hours on a narrow ridge to reach the summit, in what's called the death zone. That's because at 29,000 feet, oxygen levels are only about a third of what they are at sea level, and it's hard for the human body to keep functioning. So what's the local government's responsibility in all of this? The Nepalese government is getting a lot of heat for these deaths on Mount Everest. Some say they took too long fixing a safety rope that goes to the top of the mountain. And they're also being called out for the added permits. But climbers say it's not just about the numbers. Summiting Everest has become a bucket list item, and not just for super experienced climbers. Nepal doesn't have any strict rules for how experienced climbers or crews need to be to tackle Everest. David Morton, one of the climbers on Mount Everest last week, told CNN that that's an issue. The major problem is really inexperience, and not only the climbers that are on the mountain, but also the operators that are on the mountain that are supporting those climbers. The Nepalese government has said it's considering a change to the way it issues permits after they look at the data from this year. If you're back from a three-day weekend, this probably feels like the most Monday Tuesday in a while. If it felt even harder than that to get to work, the World Health Organization is saying, listen up. The WHO has officially recognized burnout as a legitimate medical diagnosis. Researchers have been looking at burnout since the 70s, and it's one of the most talked about mental health problems, but it hasn't been recognized by this international body before. This new burnout diagnosis only applies to work environments, and doctors have to rule out anxiety and other mood disorders first. But they say if you're feeling exhausted, feeling really cynical or distant at work, and being less productive than normal, then you should talk to a doctor. It's also Mental Health Awareness Month, and we've got more tips on how to take care of yourself on our website, theskim.com slash springforward. Before we go, we've got a fun fact coming to you from Germany. You may have heard about the European elections this weekend. We want to talk about a local election in a small German town with a long name we can't pronounce. Its nickname is Kibo. It's got a population of around 8,000 and a brand new town council member. Her name is Liesel Heise, and her major platform? Swimming pools. She wants her town to reopen its public pool, which closed down a few years ago. Oh yeah, and Councilwoman Heise is 100 years old. Yep, 100. So in case you were wondering if it's too late to dive into politics, the answer is no. Thank you. 
And that's all for Skim This. Thanks again for listening and be sure to hit subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to add The Skim to your morning routine, you can sign up for our free newsletter, The Daily Skim, right on our website at theskim.com. It's everything you need to know to start your day right in your inbox. 